Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, New International Version Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. And today on Anchored by Truth, we are starting a new study series brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In this series, we're going to think about a number of topics pertaining to the Christian faith that are sometimes not well understood. So we've labeled this series, But What About? Because a lot of times, that's how a question starts. People will ask questions like, Well, what about angels and demons? Or, What about heaven and hell? So we wanted to do individual episodes on several of these subjects to see what the Bible actually says about them. I'm here in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., why did you decide we should do this What About series? Well, hello to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. For those of you who may be new to our broadcast or podcast, Anchored by Truth is the only show of its kind that we know about because Anchored by Truth focuses exclusively on demonstrating the infallibility, inerrancy, and inspiration of Scripture. Well, as a part of doing that, of demonstrating the inerrancy, infallibility, and inspiration of Scripture, we often have to answer questions that can create some confusion among both Christians and non-Christians alike. Now, in part, this confusion arises from the fact that Christianity is a faith that is firmly grounded in place and time, but Christianity is also a faith that acknowledges the supernatural realm, and that, of course, is the realm that ordinarily can't be seen or perceived with our five senses. Now, the fact that Christianity does proclaim the truth of the supernatural realm means that people who only would like to acknowledge a perceivable reality are often going to reject the possibility entirely, the possibility of there being a supernatural realm. But we also run into questions or problems from the other side, if you will. What do you mean by that? What is the other side? The other side is people who believe in the supernatural realm so strongly, so fervently, But they also believe that the information about that supernatural realm can be derived from multiple sources. Now, sometimes those multiple sources in their worldview may include the Bible, but sometimes those sources about the supernatural realm are going to exclude the Bible. You know, in our day and time, there's no shortage of books, videos, podcasts, etc. that purport to reveal what is going on in the supernatural realm. Well, obviously then, the question that confronts everybody is, what source is trustworthy? Well, we believe that we can demonstrate that the Bible is a trustworthy source on matters that pertain to the natural realm and to the supernatural realm. 
And so by exclusion, any source that purports to report information about the supernatural realm that does not go back to the Bible, well, we would regard that as being an unreliable source for information about the supernatural realm. So, the other side of the coin from those who reject the idea of the supernatural entirely are those who think that they or others have extra-biblical knowledge of the supernatural. You're thinking of people who claim to have visited a supernatural realm or possess the ability to tell the future or have regular encounters with supernatural beings and quite often have written books or even given interviews about knowledge they claim to possess. Yes, It becomes a question of competing truth claims. For instance, a particular person may claim that they have visited heaven or hell and now come back to tell the rest of us about what goes on there. So the question is whether or not their account about that supposed experience is true and trustworthy. So as Christians, we have to be able to provide intelligent answers to both groups, both the group that disbelieves in the supernatural realm entirely and the group that claims that there are multiple ways of acquiring knowledge about a supernatural realm. Now, fortunately for us, the Bible gives us a definitive standard for identifying and explaining the truth. So we've entitled today's episode of Anchor by Truth as, But What About the Bible? Obviously, we've done lots of episodes on demonstrating the fact that the Bible is true and trustworthy. For instance, we did an entire series we called The Truth in Genesis just to provide an overview of the scientific evidence that demonstrates the truth of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We did that series because no part of the Bible is subject to more attacks and criticism than the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So we've done lots of series to demonstrate the truth of the various parts of the Bible. But today you want to do just a broad overview of various facts and elements that support the trustworthiness of the Bible as a whole. Yes. Now, we've covered much of this information as elements of other shows or series, but today we just kind of wanted to do a brief summary of many of the attributes of the Bible or its history that help demonstrate that the Bible is what it claims to be, the inspired word of an eternal and almighty God. And I would like to emphasize that what we're going to go over today is really just a very brief summary. Many of the points that we're going to go over today would deserve entire shows or even entire series for themselves. So today, what we're trying to do is just really give a few of the highlights. So we would definitely like to encourage listeners to not only begin their own investigation into these subjects, but to do their investigations at a depth that's just not possible for the time that we have available on the radio or on podcasts. So where do you want to start? Well, let's start by remembering that the Bible was compiled and composed over a period of 1,500 years, starting around the 15th century B.C. and ending around the end of the 1st century A.D. The Old Testament text was actually completed sometime between the years 430 B.C. to 450 B.C., and then there was a gap of about 400 to 450 years that's referred to as the intertestamental period. And we did an eight-episode series on the intertestamental period to show that even though new books of the Bible weren't added, the history of redemption continued without a break. Right. So after the intertestamental period, the New Testament was completed really in just a matter of several decades. Most scholars date the first book of the New Testament 
around the middle of the first century AD, and the last book of the New Testament, which is Revelation, around the end of the first century AD itself. So both the Old and the New Testaments are books that come to us from antiquity, because even the latest book of the New Testament, Revelation, was written almost 2,000 years ago. So one relevant question we have then is how can we be sure that the text that we have in our Bibles today is consistent with the documents as they were originally written? This question pertains to the adequacy and fidelity of our manuscript support for the content of the Bible. And here the Bible stacks up very well when it comes to books that come from antiquity. For instance, let's take a quick look at how careful the Jews were in preserving the accuracy of their scriptures as copyists transmitted them from one generation to another. Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, many scholars considered the Masoretic texts of the Old Testament to be one of the more reliable of the texts that had been preserved. But the earliest Masoretic texts dated from around 900 AD. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, however, Investigators found an intact scroll that contained the entire book of Isaiah, but it dated from 1,000 years earlier. So investigators wondered how many differences they would discover when they had a 1,000-year earlier manuscript to work with. The result of the investigations proved the Jews had done an amazing job of accurately transmitting the text. Right. Now, just as one example of that amazing accuracy, is that of the 166 Hebrew words in Isaiah chapter 53, there were only 17 Hebrew letters that differed between the Masoretic text and the Isaiah Dead Sea Scroll. And 10 of those letter differences were just variations in the spelling of the same word, and 4 of those letter differences were stylistic changes. And in the other three variations in letters, they pertained to one single word and they had no effect on the meaning of any passage. Now, overall, there was a 95% word-for-word identity between various Old Testament texts and the text that was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, this shows an amazing degree of fidelity present in the Masoretic text with the documents that had been discovered which were prepared a thousand years earlier. And another element of judging the quality of manuscript support for a current text is the number of complete or partial manuscripts that are currently in existence. And here again, the Bible stands head and shoulders above other documents that come to us from antiquity, right? Right. For instance, when it comes to the New Testament, we have more and better copies of manuscripts available than for any other ancient book that comes to us from the same time period. Now, according to F.F. Bruce, who wrote a book called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? There are only about nine or ten copies of Julius Caesar's Gaelic War that survive. And there's only about 20 copies of the Roman historian Livy's Roman History. And there's only two copies of the Roman historian Tacitus's Annals. The most documented ancient book aside from the Bible is Homer's Iliad, which has about 643 manuscript copies. Now, despite this relative scarcity of the manuscripts that support the text of those books that we have today, no secular historian seriously challenges the text of those books. But just by way of comparison, the New Testament is preserved in 5,686 either partial or complete manuscripts. 
What's even more amazing is that if you were to compile the quotations that were made by the early church fathers from the 2nd century through the 4th century, there are 36,289 of those quotations. Those were quotations from the books of the New Testament. So that means you could assemble the entire New Testament just from the quotations alone, except for 11 verses. And the New Testament documents are excellent when it comes to the events recorded and the time the record was produced. Some scholars believe the earliest gospel, Mark, might have been produced as early as the early 50s A.D. That means it was written only two decades after Jesus' life and death. This is far too short a time period for legendary embellishments to be created and added. If someone had tried to do that, there would have been plenty of hostile witnesses who quickly would have shut down such an attempt. Yes. The fact that the New Testament documents were prepared so close to the events that they describe means that many people still would have been alive when those documents first emerged. So if the documents had been inaccurate, there would have been plenty of people around who could challenge the accuracy of the documents. And as you just indicated, many of the people who would have been around to challenge those documents would have been more than happy to stop the stories about Jesus from circulating if it had been possible for them to do so. At a minimum, the Jewish authorities certainly tried to stop the apostles from preaching about Jesus. We have their attempt to stop apostles from proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead, described in Acts chapter 4, verse 18. Quote, so the council members called them back in and told them that under no circumstances were they to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus, unquote. The council being referred to here was the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council comprised of Sadducees and Pharisees. They tried to stop the disciples from telling the Jews that Jesus had risen from the dead, and it makes sense that they would. They were the ones who had begged Pontius Pilate to put Jesus to death after conducting a sham trial that didn't conform to Jewish law. They certainly didn't want the people being reminded of their part in the crime. They also didn't want widespread dissension among the people because they knew that would bring a severe Roman crackdown. Yes, but it wasn't just the Sadducees and Pharisees who didn't want the news of the resurrection being preached. The Romans didn't either. It's well known that the Romans actively persecuted the earliest Christians, even though the level of persecution was not consistent throughout the empire. The Roman historian that we mentioned earlier, Tacitus, when he was writing about the great fire of Rome, noted that the emperor Nero had been blamed for the fire. And so Tacitus wrote this, and I'm quoting now, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition broke out. Many scholars believe that the mischievous superstition Tacitus was referring to was the belief in the resurrection. But notice that this quote from Tacitus, who is considered to be one of the most accurate of the ancient historians, is also helpful in authenticating the accuracy of the New Testament text. Tacitus lived between 56 AD and 120 AD, so his lifetime coincides with the formation of the early church. In this quote, Tacitus validates the fact that there was a man named Christus who had been executed by Pontius Pilate. 
This is, of course, what all four of the Gospels report. Tacitus, quote, also validates that by the time he wrote in the first century, Christianity was so widespread in the Roman Empire that Nero could use Christians as scapegoats for his own evil purposes. It's remarkable that a historian like Tacitus would write about Jesus at all. Jesus was just an itinerant preacher in a far distant corner of the vast Roman Empire. He had no armies, had no official position, not even written any books. His public ministry lasted only three years. Yet only decades after his death, a Roman historian had to take note of his existence when writing about matters in the capital of the empire. Right. And the quote from Tacitus that I just gave provides additional verification of the accuracy of the New Testament in a remarkable, though completely unexpected way. How so? Well, for many years, there were questions about the existence and actual title of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who presided over the trial of Jesus. Later Roman writers, such as Tacitus that you just heard, as well as almost all Bible reference works, referred to Pilate as the procurator of Judea. But Luke and the other gospel writers called Pilate a governor, not a procurator. Now, the fact that governor was the correct title for Pontius Pilate was confirmed in 1961 when a two-by-three-foot stone was discovered that had a Latin inscription. The translation of the inscription read as follows, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, had presented the Tiberium to the Caesareans. Now, this tablet was not only archaeological confirmation for the existence of Pilate himself, but it was also confirmation that Pilate was the prefect, which the translation for prefect is governor, so Pilate was the prefect or governor of Judea, not a procurator. But it's possible that Tacitus knew about the change in titles and just wanted to convey the information to his readers using the title they would have been most familiar with. I mean, isn't that a possibility? Tacitus' use of the term doesn't automatically mean he was being sloppy. I agree. And again, most scholars consider Tacitus to be one of the more accurate of the ancient historians. It's entirely possible that Tacitus knew the precise title for Pilate was prefect, not procurator, but he thought his readers might not. So Tacitus wrote and used the title that would make the most sense to his readers. But this does not take away anything from the impeccable accuracy of the use of the correct title by the gospel writers. In other words, the fact that Tacitus may have made a decision about the use of one word or another, that does not affect the amazing accuracy of the gospel writers when they wrote their records about the life, trial, and death of Jesus. And so this reflects the fact that the gospel writers paid very close attention to details that might seem insignificant to us, like the titles of Roman governing officials. But it also shows us that those gospel writers were writing very close in time to the events that they were reporting. You know, if the gospel writers had been writing decades after the events, and they were just sort of reporting what had become a popular legend about a Jewish preacher who had risen from the dead, if they were just writing some sort of legendary accounts, trying to create some sort of a pious fiction, they surely would not have cared about the difference between Pilate being a prefect or a procurator. So, all this goes back to support our basic point about the Bible. Our current Bible contains a text that is well supported by an abundance of manuscript evidence, and our current Bibles contain accurate details of the historical events they reported. The body of evidence gives us a high degree of confidence in the basic reliability of the Bible. 
But does the basic confidence in the Bible translate into giving us confidence in the supernatural elements that the Bible describes? After all, it's possible that a writer who's ordinarily very reliable may have occasional instances where they make up things, or they just get something wrong. And that's a fair question. So let's think about this. As a whole, the Bible was recorded by over three dozen human authors who wrote over a period of 1,500 years. And literally, from the first book to the last, there are numerous descriptions of supernatural occurrences. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, there are angels. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, there are angels. And there are angelic appearances in many of the books in between. Yet despite the very large time gaps that separated these many, varied reports, there is a remarkable degree of consistency in the recorded descriptions. And this is true even when there is a variety among the descriptions themselves. For instance, there are times in the Bible when the angels are clearly being sent to accomplish a fairly mundane task, like leading Lot and his family out of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, or angels leading Peter out of a jail. When the angels are doing fairly mundane things, the angels don't appear to have a very remarkable appearance. In fact, their appearances can be so unremarkable that at times people don't even recognize that they are among the angels. In Hebrews 13.2, we are commanded to, and I'm quoting, show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. But sometimes angels are reported doing remarkable things, such as carrying messages directly from God to specific individuals. Quite often on these remarkable occasions, the angels have an appearance which reflects the remarkable nature of their visitation. For instance, when Daniel received an important revelation from God that he reported in chapter 10 of his book, this is how he described the angel's appearance. Quote, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Euphas around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude, unquote. Exactly. And when angels appeared to the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born, it says that the glory of the Lord accompanied them. I mean, the sight that the shepherds perceived was certainly startling enough to cause them to be frightened. And shepherds were very tough men. They were used to hardship and danger. So if they were frightened, well, the glory of the Lord that accompanied the angels, that must have been a pretty startling sight. And there is the well-known appearance of the angels at Jesus' tomb. Here is the description from Matthew chapter 28, verses 2 through 4. Quote, Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint, unquote. Exactly. And the Roman soldiers who were guarding Jesus' tomb, they were also very tough men. They were men who were used to a great deal of danger, and so for them to be so frightened that they fell over into a dead faint, well, that angelic appearance must have been startling to say the least. And of course, there are some truly amazing descriptions of angelic beings such as the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1 and the angels around the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4. 
And the descriptions of these angels are truly strange. Multiple faces, multiple wings, multiple eyes, etc. But one thing to notice is that despite the variety of different descriptions given to angels, the angelic appearance is always suited to the moment and the situation. The most extraordinary appearances of angels match the most sublime moments of revelation. And remember that these descriptions didn't come from just one human author. They came from dozens of human authors who were often separated in their writing by hundreds of years. Yet the consistency of their reports about these angelic beings is so remarkable as to lend support to the authenticity of all of their reports. So your point is that even though we can't achieve the same degree of external verification about the supernatural reports in the Bible, those reports do display attributes that mark them as being true. All the human authors described angels in very consistent ways when you consider the different settings in which the angels appear. The angels appear as ordinary men when their task is more ordinary, but when God really wants to get someone's attention, the angelic appearance immediately helps achieve that goal. And that pattern is consistent across a period of 1,500 years, no matter which writer is doing the recording. Right. So, unless you want to conceive that there was some form of a Bible writer-style guide, even the supernatural reports in the Bible contain the hallmarks of being true reports. And the same thing is true of the other supernatural elements described by the Bible. For instance, no Bible writer ever, including Jesus, tried to give a detailed description of God the Father. God the Father is simply beyond the ability of the human mind to hold a firm conception of His grandeur and magnificence. And this lack of a description of God the Father in the Bible is entirely consistent with the Second Commandment. God does not want us developing any false concepts that we can turn into idols. So even God's prohibitions when it comes to talking about the supernatural are consistent. And this is one of the reasons we want to do this, but what about series? We want to focus on what the Bible says about these subjects, which are outside our normal experiences. Because they are outside our normal scope of experience, they are easily subject to being sensationalized or distorted. Exactly. The Bible's historical accounts are trustworthy, and we've demonstrated that today with just a few examples. There are so many more that we could have used, but we just don't have the time to do that in a single show. But because we know the things that we can verify in the Bible are trustworthy, this gives us a solid basis from which to invest our confidence in the parts of the Bible that are beyond our normal experience. The important thing is to be sure that we base our understanding of the supernatural elements on the Bible. When we do so, we can be very confident that we are using the best source of truth in a world where confusion swirls around us like the winds that rotate around tropical storms. If we don't want to be blown away, we have to be sure that we are always firmly anchored to the truth. And that source of truth is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Sounds to me like a great time for a prayer. Today's prayer comes from another one of Crystal Sea Books' offerings. The book, Purposeful Prayers, and it's a prayer for adoration of the Creator who made and sustains the entire universe and each of us. A prayer of praise for the Creator. Mighty and everlasting Father, 
You are a kind and merciful God. You have given us eyes to see, fingers to touch, ears to hear, and minds to understand. You bring us into the full and certain knowledge of your transcendent creative power. When men gazed at the stars and sky, they could perceive the depth, but not measure the distance. Through your grace, man now has the ability to understand that your cosmos is more supremely complex and vast than ever could have been known before. What mortal mind can fathom this magnificence? Praise be to you, Father of the galaxy, and praise to your Son, who created at your right hand. It is because of his descent that we will one day be lifted up. So we pray and give thanks in his name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.